I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, the second chapter of the book of Acts. I'm going to read from verse 40 right to the end of the chapter. And as you see, my topic this morning is communities of grace. We're going to be looking at how God calls us together to receive His grace and to project that grace onto other people. Acts chapter 2 verse 40 says, And with many other words, he, that is Peter, testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. This gives us a very clear insight into the dynamic vital Christian community in the very early church there in the city of Jerusalem. And in a week when we've had announced who is the, to be the next Archbishop of Canterbury and when he has stood in the press conference and made a number of points, namely he says, this is a tough job, I'm going to get it wrong sometimes and we don't always get it right, but I have great hope for the church, and he's speaking about the established church, the Anglican Church, Church of England, but also in many ways he's speaking on behalf of, of us all as believers. We're told he's an evangelical believer, which is good news because the clarity of the gospel is what evangelicals are, are renowned for. But more than that, he was talking about the church as a community and how we have a, a duty to the com community outside the church. And it's, <clears throat> it's that that I want to speak about today. Now, many of you will know what the full context here is. It's the day of Pentecost. Amen. And the Holy Spirit has fallen on the church and amazing things have happened and people are speaking in tongues and a crowd gathers because they're hearing them, people who didn't know their own language, speaking their own language and... and, and, and proclaiming the wonderful things of God, and, and Peter, it's his turn. He stands up as an official broadcaster on behalf of the Christian church. You know, we're all called to witness, and we're all called to share our faith, but God has a way of taking men and women and specifically equipping them and anointing them to proclaim the gospel officially and publicly 
on behalf of the Christian church. And this was the very first sermon like that. Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, he preaches a powerful message. Luke gives us the main content of that message. And we come to the point where the people are, are moved by this. Their, their heart is, is, is touched and, and they are convicted and, and they say, what must we do? And he tells them, you must believe in Jesus. That's the answer. And then we come to the part where we began to read. And Luke says, Peter said many other things. And this is uh, Luke's words. He says, Luke is the author of this, uh, of this book, the book of Acts. And he says, with many other words, Peter testified and exhorted them. Interesting. Let's pause there for a moment. When Peter testifies... What is he doing? He is an apostle. He is an eyewitness of Jesus. He is an eyewitness of the crucifixion. He is an eyewitness of the resurrection. He was there when Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes. He was there on, even on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus' glory was revealed. He heard the voice from heaven. He said, I want to tell you something. I was there. This is not an invention. This is my testimony. I was there and not just me, but we are all witnesses of this thing. Jesus is alive from the dead. We've seen him. We've been talking to him. He is the savior of the world. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. And we need to remember that the gospel is not human ideas. This is not just something that's invented as a, one form of a religion. And anyway, we can have this religion or another religion. No, he is giving witness to events which were historical, which actually took place. And he's speaking with authority. Now, if today you, you witness something, I mean something quite dramatic, I don't know, invent something, you know, you witness Big Ben fall down, I don't know, whatever. Let's, God forbid. But if you witnessed that and you were there, your witness would be valid one year from now. Yes? I was there. I saw it. And you wrote that down. Your witness would be valid a hundred years from now. That person was there and eyewitness saw it. And that word would be valid 2,000 years from now. So just because the events that Peter described happened 2,000 years ago, it doesn't mean that his witness is any less valid today. But he didn't just witness. He actually exhorted people as well. Because the facts of the gospel are, are not just news facts. Beep, 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 beep. Okay, good evening. News at 10. We have the news. A man called Jesus was raised from the dead. And now for the weather, you know. I mean, if Jesus was raised from the dead, it means something. It puts a question mark over your life. What are you going to do with this witness? Many years ago, I was amongst the first of the ministers in Britain that was trained in a presentation of the gospel called Evangelism Explosion. I know my good friend R.T. Kendall, formerly of Westminster Chapel, picked this up as well, became one of the national directors. And, and what this is, is just teaching people how to communicate the gospel in a structured way. In other words, learning the correct scriptures, learning how to present 
the gospel in a format where people can follow simply. And there comes a point when the gospel presentation has been made, you ask this question. And it's something like this. You don't have to do it word for word, but it's something like this. Now, if these things are true, then automatically there's a question mark over your life. What are you going to do with Jesus? And it's that point that we've got to get good at challenging people. Here are the facts. This is the claim. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to say yes to Jesus? Now, let me do it to you today, all right? Everybody under the sound of my voice. I don't know all of you. I know some of you. I don't know all of you. But whoever you are, wherever you are, under the sound of my voice, if you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, the Bible says you are still lost in your sins. What are you going to do about it? He has died for you, and now it is up to you to choose or not to choose. It's your choice, but of course I want to persuade you to make the right choice to say, Lord Jesus Christ, come into my life, save me from my sins, and make me a child of God. Amen. So that's what it means when Peter testified and exhorted them. Now, what was the challenge in particular? What was the call in particular? To me, as I look at it, it's quite extraordinary. And I want to base my message on this today. Peter says, I want you to do something. And what is it? Have a look in that verse, verse 40, the second part of that verse 40. What does it say? Peter testified and exhorted them saying, be saved. All right. If you didn't have your eyes on this passage, I wonder how you would finish the sentence. Because we too, we Pentecostals are also good evangelicals. We like to make the gospel clear. And we don't mince our words. When we tell somebody, brother, you need to be saved, we can mean some very big stuff, very significant things. First of all, it can mean be saved from hell. Because this life is not all there is. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die and after that face judgment. And Jesus warned about hell, which is total separation from God forever. Separation from everything that is loving and good and true and being given over to your own sinful nature where an eternity of separation from God is the destiny of all those who are not in right relationship with God. We could say that. And Peter's words imply that, but he didn't say it specifically. Something else that could be said, be saved from your sins. It's Christmas soon, isn't it? What happened in the Christmas story? The angel said, Gabriel said, you shall call him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And these truths are formidable truths, weighty truths, because it is the consequence of sin in our life that gives us the need for God's grace and mercy in the first place. Now, in a sense, what Peter says also implies that, but he didn't say it explicitly. This is what he said. Be saved from this perverse 
generation. Wow, that set my mind thinking. Extraordinary. Now, we know that a generation that has rejected God and continues to do so will be lost forever, okay? We know that a generation that is, that is dead in its sins will need deliverance from sins, and if not, will remain forever in bondage to sins. We know that. But what is interesting to me is that Peter says, you gotta, you got to be saved from the generation that is under the control of the evil one. Now, in the New King James Version, it uses the word, word perverse. You know, New King James is quite good. You know, he's a little more modern than the old King James. But this word perverse is actually not so easy today, is it? We don't use it so often, perverse. It's in our vocabulary, but it's, it's not so modern. It sounds highly offensive. So I decided to look and to see what the original word here is in the Greek. And the word is scolo, scoliosis. No, that's the, <laughs> that's, that's the application. Scolios, from which we get the word scoliosis. Okay? Yes? Is that how you say it? Scolosis. Scoliosis. How do you say it? Scoliosis. I got it right first time. Okay. Thank you very much. I'm right when I'm right, but I'm doubly right when my wife says I'm right. Okay. <laughs> and that's the uh, medical term for a curvature of the spine. A curvature of the spine. The spine, which should be straight, actually is curved. It's bent out of shape. It is an extremely painful condition. And that's the meaning here. The society is bent out of shape. This generation has deviated from God's will Deviated from the truth, and painfully so. You know, today we, we kind of think we, you can choose and make up your own morality. And it doesn't really matter. But the truth is, according to God's word, is that that which lines up with God is straight and true. And anything that is outside of that is harmful, painful, destructive. And so Peter actually makes a statement about the generation of his day, which is no different from the generation of our day, in which, as a generation, the whole community of people outside of alignment with God are in a condition by their, in terms of their behavior, their beliefs, their lifestyle totally out of alignment with God. And he says, be saved from this generation. In other words, get out of it. There's a transition coming in your life when you will be removed from one community into another community. See, salvation is not just about you and me individually. We know how important it is for every single person to make his or her own decision and come to a personal knowledge of Christ as personal Savior. And that's good. 
But Jesus did not just come that we should be saved personally. He comes to impact lives individually, yes, but also families, communities, and the whole nation and nations. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Go and make disciples of all nations. So in other words, God does not just think of our relationship with Him in individual terms. Now this is so important because Western Christianity in particular is dominated and controlled by an individualism. It's my life, I give it to Jesus or I don't. I join a cell or I don't join a cell. I come at 9 or I come at 11. I come this week to this church, another week, another church, doesn't matter. I can do what I like. I am a law unto myself. Ah, no. Salvation has a community dimension, a corporate dimension, and that is called the church of Jesus Christ. And so he says, you've stepped out of one realm in which the prevailing spirit and attitude is rejection of God and His standard into another community, a community of people who have another prevailing attitude, and that is of conformity with God, restoration to relationship with Him, and restoration of life so that that which was previously out of line, that scoliosis, can be corrected and realigned. And the Bible describes this in many ways. He says we have, the Bible says we have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness, from the power of darkness, and transferred into another kingdom, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of love. And it's we together, we are the community of the kingdom of God. And in this community, we walk in the light, not in darkness. We conform our lives to the person of Jesus Christ. And there is a difference between being in the world and being in the church. It is not just about your personal choice or personal opinion. Because what happens is that we come from this world of darkness and want to reestablish some of those principles within this new community. Mais ça n'existe pas. L'église de Jésus-Christ est tout à fait différente que l'esprit qui existe dans le monde. Ça va? À demain, mes amis. I'm just saying a few things in French to my French-speaking friends who are watching. What did I say? I forget now. All right. <laughs> we don't import darkness into the realm of light. It's totally different. There are different standards here. And there are boundaries. And when we cross from one border into another border, and we are on the frontier, we pass from one boundary to another boundary. And now we are no longer uh, uh, people who say, we will live as we choose. If I like it, I'll take it. If I believe it, I'll follow it. No, no. We are community of the King. And we are surrendered to Jesus Christ. And we are in it together. And it's so important. Light and darkness, that's the difference. Now, hear me. I'm not saying 
that the moment you are saved, you are rescued from the terrible world in which you lived, and suddenly now you become so holy and so perfect. I mean, the Christian church is not a perfect community. I know that may shock some of you today. You've never seen that before. You thought everybody was perfect. When I was first saved and I was in a church, I thought, it's just, all these people love Jesus. They're all wonderful. And I began to realize that some love Jesus more than others. And some were less wonderful than others. And I heard backbiting and bickering and criticism and lying and character assassination. And I realized, oh, oh boy, we're not perfect. And neither was I. But it's not that we're perfect. It's just that we have made a decision. And the Holy Spirit lives in us to help us with this. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. We still have our L plates on. We're learning. We're not perfect yet. But we're on the way. Because we've made a decision. We want to live for God and we're in it together. And so we say, we want to live for God together. Therefore, what's going on in your life is my business. Not just because I'm the spiritual leader of this community alongside the other pastoral leaders. No, no. It's because I'm a member of the same body. And what's happening in the lives of your brothers and sisters is important to you. We are our brother's keeper. And this idea, well, you know, you can come and you can live by worldly standards and you can just be in the church and it doesn't matter. Of course it matters. It matters. There are boundaries. God has given to us a kingdom. And when we receive that kingdom and surrender to his will, we become a community. Esteban Hetchelin in the 230 service is going to talk more about what it means to live in the righteousness of the kingdom and desire God more than anything else and, and the righteousness that is God and the righteousness that flows from God and the righteousness that shapes our lives to be like God. We must understand in this egalitarian free will society, we must surrender to the King of Kings and know this is not just what one church teaches or another church teaches. It's if it's what the Bible teaches, it comes from God, and it matters because we've been rescued from an evil generation, and we are brought to be sons and daughters of the kingdom in the kingdom of God. Amen and amen. So it's amazing how he says, he puts it in those terms, which tells us that to be saved means more than having a ticket, a passport, and a visa for heaven. Hope you got your flight booked. Make it an open ticket. Don't put the date on it. <laughs> open ticket. So when the time comes, you're ready to go. Thank God for our visa, our passport, everything we need. Our ticket to heaven. Amen, amen, amen. That's wonderful. But salvation is much more than that. It means being rescued from a way of living that's dominated by godlessness and at the head of that, of course, we know is the evil one himself. 
I'm brought into a community of people who are saying, we belong together. We need each other to pray for one another, to fight for one another. I didn't say fight with one another. Somebody was quite happy about that. Fight. I want to, no, no, fight for one another, not with one another. Fight for one another, uphold one another, pray for one another. How about this one? Revolution, love one another. Now, there's a good idea. Why didn't we think of that before? And you know, the more we glow with the values of the glory of the kingdom of God, the more people will be attracted. Uh, some of the BBC commentators were talking about the, uh, the uh, Archbishop of Can Canterbury designate as saying, well, this is an interesting man. He's only been a bishop for one year, and he believes in God. <laughs> well, you know, I don't know any Archbishop of Canterbury that has, that has said, I don't believe in God. But I do know of bishops who have said that, and ministers who have said that, because in the secular world, say, well, this God business is a little bit too controversial. Let's just be nice to people. 